Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 4th, 2015. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, January 2nd, is 7158. That's 7158. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Doctor's Opinion. The doctor's opinion is the foundation of the whole book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and of the entire AA Fellowship. This section may simply seem to be a helpful introductory note, but without it, the entire book doesn't make sense. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, the doctor who wrote the two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an allergy of the body, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of foods, we develop cravings, which overpower us, and we have a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again and again and again. With us today to speak about the doctor's opinion is Harlan, a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is dedicated to living this program of recovery and dedicated to OA and to teaching the solution as outlined in the big book. Welcome, Harlan. Thank you, Leah. I'm I'm very, very glad to be here, and I'm very glad to be able to start off the year with a really good look at the foundation of all the things that we're going to build on as we work our program. And the very base, the very pedestal of everything in Overeaters Anonymous comes from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the doctor's opinion written by William Duncan Silkworth. And for 6,000 years, thousands and thousands of years, People prior to him have philosophized, theorized about what alcoholism, what gluttony is, and they didn't have a cure for it, but they philosophized about it. And Solomon, way back in the Old Testament, uh, King Solomon wrote that he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he had no cure for it, and he couldn't prove it. In England, right around the time of the 1640s, there was a doctor, uh, Trotter, Dr. Trotter, and he lived in England, and he philosophized that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it, and he had no cure for it. One of the men who was the sign, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, a man who was appointed by George Washington to become our nation's first Surgeon General. His name was Dr. Benjamin Rush. And if you ever come to my city, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, but I was born and raised in Chicago. If you ever come to Chicago and you want to go to some of the touristy places there, you'll undoubtedly be pointed to places on Rush Street, so named for him. Ironically, Dr. Bob, who was the co-founder of AA, did some of his internship at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago, so named for Dr. Rush. But anyway, in 1790, he published a paper which he believed alcoholism was an illness, 
but he couldn't cure it and he had no proof of what he was saying. He just believed it. And right around the time of the 1920s in New York City, uh, the preeminent hospital for the treatment of alcoholism, drug addiction, was the Towns Hospital in New York, and it was owned and operated by Charlie Towns. And there was a neurologist there who was a friend of Charlie's, and he practiced in New York, and he was, shall we say, a little over-invested in the stock market. And on October the 29th, 1929, which we call Black Tuesday, which was the start of the Great Depression, he lost most of what he had in the stock market and he uh, knew Charlie Towns, and Charlie gave him a job working at the Towns Hospital in New York City. And in 1929, November of 29, he began working with alcoholics. He was a doctor on staff there. And just to put it into perspective, the Towns Hospital would be equated with the finest facilities that you would see today. Um, and Dr. Silkworth, in the following years between 1929 and when he meets his famous patient uh, that we're going to talk about here in just a second, he started to observe alcoholics and drug addicts. Now, these were primarily men, not 100% male, but primarily men. And he noticed that some of these men would come in and they would feed them and they would medicate them and they would treat their ailments and they would fix them up and these guys would leave. And some of them would never come back. But there was a group of them, about 10% of them, a minority of about 10% that would come into the hospital in deplorable medical shape. And he would treat them and they would get back on their feet and they would release them and sometimes that day, sometimes that week, sometimes that month, but certainly within a few months, these men were back at the door of the town's hospital in worse shape than he had, that he had admitted them the last time. There was something different about these people that set them apart from the others. And he started to formulate his opinion. Now, before we begin, let's remember that the big book was written in 37 and 38. It was published in April of 39. The information that we're going to look at this morning in its time was highly controversial. For thousands of years, alcoholism, gluttony, any form of addiction was looked upon as the very same thing that all of us heard during our life. Weak will, lack of willpower, lack of spirit, lack of character, laziness, stupidity, madness. They used to put these guys in the insane asylum. They didn't know what else to do with them. And this information was highly controversial in its time. And most of you are looking at fourth edition big books. Some of you may be looking at third edition big books. But for the first 10 editions of the the first 10 printing, excuse me, of the first edition of the big book, William Silkworth's name did not appear in there, as we're going to find it does when we turn the page and at the end of the section. It was not in there because Bill Wilson, co-founder of AA, asked Dr. Silkworth to write this 
but he did it under one condition. He said, don't you dare put my name in there. He said, if you put my name in there, Bill, they're going to run me out of the medical profession. It wasn't until the noted psychiatrist, Harry Tebow, who became one of Bill's mentors, who changed the direction of the big book in its language. But Harry Tebow wrote Appendix uh, 3, but the bottom line is, until 1949, when Harry Tebow wrote his famous paper and the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, began accepting alcoholism as an illness. And Dr. Silkworth said in 1949 to Bill Wilson when they were getting ready for the 11th printing of the first edition, he said, okay, you can put my name in there now. But uh, he was only able to enjoy two years of having his name in there because, unfortunately, Dr. Silkworth passed away. He left our site and left our, uh, left our earth uh, in 1951. But he remains today our great medical benefactor. We wouldn't have a program without his input. So let's see what he wrote, and let's see how close it tallies to our lives. And people come into OA, and they make their announcements and when I say they make their announcements, and I did this too, I came in in 1979. I'm here and I eat because my mother used food for love. And I eat because we're Italian or we're Jewish or we're uh, German or Japanese or we're whatever we are. And that's, we use food at all. All cultures do. All cultures do. And one of the reasons that our mothers used food for love for, with us is because the food with us worked because it made us happy. If we weren't compulsive overeaters, they, made have to, they might have had to try something else. But let's look at the information in here and let's see why we're really eating and see if we can't smash through some of the myths as to what got us here. Okay. Page XXZ. Now, in the first printing of the first edition of the big book, this was in chapter one, and then they moved it to the Roman numeral section. But let's look at, I'm in a fourth edition, and it's on page 25 or XXV. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. <clears throat> Excuse me. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. Now, when I see that word hopeless, what I must equate that to in my mind is out of ideas. I must be bereft of any idea that I have of how I'm going to control this illness or how I'm going to do this my way. Because until I am out of ideas, I am not going to recover. I'm not going to let God in. I'm not going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of anything because I'm not going to take those actions and I'm not going to surrender. So I must be out of ideas. In the course of his third treatment, now in Bill's story, we're going to see the accounting in Bill's story of Bill going into the town's hospital three times. But something very, very special happened in Bill's life 
between hospitalization number two and hospitalization number three. And he is going to come into contact with the Oxford Group movement through his friend, Ebby Thatcher. And we'll get, in, you, we'll get into that when we do Bill's story. It won't be this morning, but you will get into it. He acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery, that's the Oxford Group. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. In other words, we have to pass it on or we cannot keep it. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. And you have this word here, recovered, and this brings about controversy. Can I recover in Overeaters Anonymous? Yes, I can. And I remain today recovered, but not cured. And we'll get into that a little later. But I am recovered in that I am not sitting here fighting food. I'm not sitting here hunkered down, swinging from the chandelier, going, I'm not going to eat Oreos today. I'm not going to eat Oreos. I'm not doing that. I'm not thinking like that. I'm free for, for today. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. And when I look at that, I have to say to myself, is there a method of overcoming this that was successful? Absolutely not. Because if diets worked, I wouldn't be on the phone this morning. If diets worked, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be in the situation where I came into Overeaters Anonymous and I wouldn't trade my life in Overeaters Anonymous for anything. But if diets worked, I would have been thin and done and all this when I was five years old, three years old, because food has been and weight has been an issue in my life from the time I was one minute old. I am not one of these people who came upon this illness, you know, later in life. I have been afflicted with this from the moment I was born. And nothing I did, nothing that was done to me, nothing that was done in my presence helped. Diet pills didn't help. Even when I was 10 years old and they were prescribed by a doctor, I didn't take street drugs. These were prescribed by a physician when I was 10, when I was 11. I did everything I could do to stem the tide of this illness. If there was a diet out there, I went on it, and it failed every time. And we're going to find out why this morning. We're going to find out why by opening up the hood and looking inside as to the mechanism that caused my failure at every step. These facts, bottom of 25, appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid... <clears throat> excuse me, rapid growth inherent in this group, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, M.D. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows, in this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. And one of the myths that you hear in OA today, one of the myths that you hear from the fellowship is, well, you know, you can work it your way or, you know, take what you want, leave the rest and all this other stuff. Yeah, those are great sayings. 
for people who don't want to recover. But what I have to remember is I must do this. And the word must appears in the book 72 times. This is something that I must believe. And what I'm going to read now is extremely controversial information in its time that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. And this is the very first reference ever of a physical component to, to this illness. The physical component had never been before discussed or theorized about. It was considered to be madness, weak will, lack of spirit, lack of willpower, you name it. And here he is bringing in a physical component It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. And again, this is very controversial in its time. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy, make note of that word because we're coming back to that word big time, to alcohol interests us. As lame in our opinion as to its soundness may of course mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. And what he's talking about there, what it's explaining that we things we cannot otherwise account is why it was that every single time I wanted to eat two donuts, I ate 20. Why is it that every single time I was going to have just a couple of cookies and I ate the whole bag? Why is it that every single time I swore to myself I was going to stay on my diet, I couldn't do it? And I didn't know at that time, and and it wouldn't have mattered if I knew it because emotions trump intellect. It wouldn't have mattered what I knew I was going to eat because the allergy is something that we really need to look at here. We're going to take just a second to look at this word allergy. And when I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 1979, people said to me, don't eat pizza. You're allergic to pizza. And I'd say to them, wait a minute. Wait a fakakta minute here. I'm eating four football fields of pizza a week. I don't have watery eyes. I'm not itching. I'm not scratching. I'm not breaking out in hives. What kind of mishigas is this that you're telling me? Mishigas is craziness. What kind of thing are you telling me that I'm allergic to pizza? I love pizza. What they didn't understand to tell me was what this meant. So I went to a source of information that has never failed me, and I went to a dictionary. And the dictionary has a couple of definitions for this word allergy. And I looked at it, and I found a definition of allergy that fit me completely. It says, an adverse, abnormal reaction to a food, beverage, or substance. Adverse means it's harmful, and abnormal means most people don't react to the food, beverage, or substance like I do. <clears throat> Excuse me. I just forgot the cold here. But anyway, what I looked at when I saw this definition was me exactly. Why is it 
that the more I eat of certain things, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat, and the more I eat, the more I want, and it's just endless. There was never enough to fill me if they had dumped it off with a dump truck, with a railroad car, with a ship filled to the guttles with candy or whatever, Oreo cookies, whatever it was. If they had filled my plate with enough Oreos so that the building wouldn't hold it, it would not have been enough. And what I did not understand until that time was what they were talking about with this word allergy. Adverse, it's harmful, abnormal means nine out of ten people react normally to these things and I react abnormally that these other people have the same relationship with food that I have with the gasoline in the car of my in my automobile and when I go to the gas station to fill my car with gasoline I do not get any type of reaction to it. I, it doesn't do anything for me. It's a pain in the butt. It's something that I do because I have to do it. It's money that I don't really want to spend, and I don't get any emotional charge out of it. I don't sneak off to another gas station and make up some story about a party where we need gasoline, and how many people will this 20-gallon tank fill how many cars will, because I've got this part, I don't do that. Why? Because I have a normal relationship with gasoline. I don't do anything like that that's crazy with gasoline because I don't care. But with food, I do. Bottom of 26, Roman numerals. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, Altruism just simply means I'm going to help other people. And this is a theme that is going to run through the book, the spiritual and altruistic solution. And when the big book wants to tell us something, it tells it to us many times, many ways, from many different directions. And this is the first time we're going to be told this, but it's certainly not the last time. We favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he then has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. And what Dr. Silkworth is telling me here, and what he's going to tell me three times in the doctor's opinion is, in order for me to work the steps and have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, I am going to have to put down the food. And I can hear some of the people listening to this on tape, and I can hear some of the people on the phone right now shaking their heads yes or getting really scared. But that's the reality of the situation. I must put down the food. If I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and I went to them and I was drunk, they wouldn't say, okay, you're drunk, let's work the steps. No, they would sober me up and made sure that I was sober for a couple of days, and then we could start working the steps. I can't, I can't have a spiritual awakening while my head and my, my uh, body are full of food, and I, I'm not seeing things clearly. I, I'm, I'm in a psychotic state at that point. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. 
I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. Now, the next paragraph, I want to look at it twice. I'm going to read it as it is right now. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. And I'm going to take a look at this paragraph again, but I'm going to consider again that Dr. Silkworth is a man of science. He is a physician. He is not a theologian. He is not an alcoholic in the Oxford group or in AA. He is a man of science. I'm going to change some of the words here so that I can get a better understanding in my brain. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of spiritual awakening was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond medicine's conception. What were the medicine's ultramodern standards, medicine's scientific approach to everything, medicine is perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of God that lie outside our medical knowledge. What is he telling me here that I need to know? And what he is telling me is this. We are, have taken a truckload of dreck and dumped it on the medical profession, and we have said to the medical profession, cure us, help us. And they can't. They can operate on us. They can give us pills. They can shoot your butt with with the urine of pregnant women. They can do whatever they do, and it is not going to make much difference. I sit in meetings with, and you do too, and there may be people on the phone in this, and I'm not criticizing this. I'm, I'm just saying this is reality. There are people that have had the gastric bypass. There are people that have had lap band surgery. There are people that have had urine shot into them. There are people that have had all manner of amphetamines prescribed to them and pills and everything else. And I'm not knocking it. It's an outside issue. I have no opinion on that. But what I'm saying is that many of these people find that they still cannot control their food. They cannot control their emotions. And the emotions are driving them into the food. And they come to us with all these things been you know, having been done to them, and they still cannot live sanely in their world of food. The medical profession is saying here, or the, he's saying here, we cannot help you. We know what's wrong with you. You've got to have a spiritual awakening to apply the powers of God that lie outside our medical knowledge. Only a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps will make it possible for me to live in a world where there is food and have a sane relationship with it and, and have a sane relationship. Okay, continuing. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. That's Bill in his contact with the Oxford group. 
Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power, notice that that's capitalized if you're following along, which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Here's the second warning of three. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological, spiritual measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. Now, here's that word again, allergy. And what he's using that is an adverse abnormal reaction is what I'm thinking in my mind, that when that craving occurs, I cannot control the amount I eat. Continuing, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed a habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Now, this is a key paragraph here. This is extremely important. And everything we're going to build comes from this chapter, and the pedestal rests on this and, and, and some of the other stuff we're going to talk about. This is key. Now, <clears throat> the compulsive overeater is eating for the effect. We're going to get to that in a couple of paragraphs, but it is extremely important that I remember that all human beings have emotions. All human beings have happiness, sadness, depression, Elation, I'm not talking clinical depression, elation, guilt, shame, remorse, regret, jealousy. All human beings have these emotions. We don't have them because we're compulsive overeater. We have them because we are human beings. And as human beings, when these emotions build to the level where they become uncomfortable, what happens in my mind is my mind will seek out what will make me feel better immediately. Now, this is very important for me to remember, and this information helped save my life to this point. To a compulsive overeater, food is not the problem. I'm going to say that, I'm going to say it two more times because this is key information why I'm still alive. To a person who eats compulsively once in a while, food is a problem. We just passed the holidays. Whatever religion you are, whatever culture you are, we are just coming out of the holidays. And you've seen some of the people who, compul who ate compulsively. They sat on the couch. They unbuttoned their belt. They were complaining that their stomachs were going to explode. And they probably didn't eat again for a day or two. Those are people who get into some trouble with food, but they do what you think and they limit their amount of intake. 
Now, compulsive eating and compulsive overeater sound very similar, but they are worlds apart. To the compulsive overeater, food is not the problem. I'll say it one more time. To the compulsive overeater, food is not the problem. Pay attention to this because this may save your life. Food is the answer to the problem. Food becomes an answer to the problem because when these emotions build and build and build and build in the normal temperate eater, they can have a drink and they're good. They can eat a Butterfinger bar and they're good. They can slap their desk. They're good. They can kick their tire, work out at the gym, go for a run, go for a walk, walk the dog. They're good. With us, when these emotions build to a point where our brains are no longer comfortable with what's going on, they send out a signal to us that says, eat cookies. And then the intellect says, willpower says, no, we're not eating cookies because we want to be thin. We don't want to look like we look. We want to be thinner. We want to look good instead of bad. We want to feel good instead of bad. And what happens is here is the problem. I told you about the answer being food. What is the problem? If food is the answer, what is the problem? The problem is the intenable unbearable, unbelievable, horse-stunning pain that comes about in our stomach, in our head, and in our heart when we are not eating. That when we are not eating, we feel horrible. And people said to us from the time we were children, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Man, they were right. When I don't eat so much, I feel lots of things better. I feel like killing myself better. I feel crushes on girls better. I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel jealousy better. I feel all these things much, much better. And anytime emotions meet intellect, emotions win. Emotions will always trump intellect. I know I shouldn't be eating cookies. I know I shouldn't be eating candy or pizza. I eat them anyway because I can no longer stand the pain of not eating them. And even though my life has been ransacked by eating them, I eat them anyway in hopes that this time maybe I won't fart so much. Maybe this time my pants won't split. Maybe this time I'll be able to function at the weight that I'm at, and I'll be okay. Maybe this time it'll be different, but I throw caution to the wind because I cannot take the pain any longer. And this is what drives me into the food. It has nothing to do with my religion. It has nothing to do with the color of my skin. It has nothing to do with my background or anything that my mother did or my father didn't do or whatever. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the way I'm wired. And for me, food becomes the answer to the problem, and the problem is the buildup of the emotions. 
That's why diets don't work. If food was the problem, treatment centers would turn out winners, and they don't. If food was the problem, diets would work, and they don't for people like us. If food was the problem, hospitalizations would turn out winners, and they don't. If food was the problem, losing a lot of weight on a diet, which many of us have done, would work, and it doesn't. The only thing that will help me is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in no other way am I going to get any type of relief from the intenable pain that comes about as the result of not eating. This is important for me to remember. It may not be important for you. It is important for me to remember that the only thing I need to have is a spiritual awakening so that my emotions will not build to the level where they force me into the food, triggering the, the mental twist, the obsession of the mind. So if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because what the food is doing for me, now you don't hear a lot about that when you're a kid. Food does something for me that it does not do for the normal eater. Food instantly changes my perception of reality. Food makes me feel fantastic for about nine seconds. That's called the effect. The effect that we're going to get to in two paragraphs, the effect is so elusive that I will chase it right to my grave. I feel fantastic when I'm eating candy bars for about eight seconds. A Butterfinger bar or two or a thousand, but a Butterfinger bar will make me feel better than years of psychoanalysis, than years of any in other indulgence for about nine seconds. And this is what I'm chasing, that the food is doing something for me. People used to ask me when I was a kid, why are you eating cookies, Harlan Grabowski? What the hell is wrong with you? And you know what I was thinking in my, in my head? I thought to myself, I wish I, didn't, I wish I didn't want to eat them, sir or ma'am. And some people yelled at me and scared me. Some people hit me. Some people abused me verbally. Some people abused me physically because I couldn't stop eating cookies. And you know, I had a question. Why in the hell aren't you eating cookies? How is it that you're walking around not eating cookies? Because you see, you can't feel our allergy. You can't feel that effect. You can't see it. You can't see it no matter what. You don't feel that effect unless you're one of us. And only we feel it. And we assume others feel it too, but that they have some Lake Michigan reservoir of willpower that they can call upon so that they don't eat candy bars, that they don't eat cookies. And I could never understand how they didn't. They didn't understand why I did. I couldn't understand why they didn't. And this is the explanation. And when it says here that we can't safely use uh, alcohol in any form at all, of course I can't. Because every single time I eat Oreo cookies and Kit Kat bars, they're going to trigger the allergy every time. And then it says, once having formed, they haven't and found they cannot break it. Once having lost their self-confidence, 
why wouldn't I lose my self-confidence when every score on every test was an F and a zero? I could not control the amount of food going in my mouth. And if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of the mental twist, I am powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. But what if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating food? What if I could live where my mind doesn't see the need for a Kit Kat bar? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? And the process of bringing God, and I know that's a dirty word to some of you. We're gonna, we, we'll talk about that in the chapters to come. The process of bringing a higher power into my life so that I have the needed power is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the food for the effect of the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps so that God can do for me slowly and effectively what the food did for me instantly, but with devastating, death-defying side effects. And that's what this is. Boiled down, we are going to not attack the food or the physical part of it, because if we don't eat Kit Kat bars, we can't crave Kit Kat bars. We're going to have a spiritual awakening so that the emotions are sated to the point where our brain just doesn't see the need for the food. I have 16 years of abstinence, and I've lost a little over 500 pounds. I live to eat. I haven't compulsively overeaten in 16 years. I haven't had a Kit Kat bar in 16 years. Why? I don't want one. I don't want it. If I wanted a Kit Kat bar, the, the, the candy bars at the grocery store a block from my house would be trembling on the shelf knowing that their life expectancy had just dwindled to minutes. I don't want it. Let's, let's, let's continue. Their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. First of all, if I can't move physically and all I'm thinking about is eating and not eating, eating and not eating, I have nothing left to solve problems. Nothing. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. Begging you, chiding you, bribing you, beating you into this will not suffice. Frothy emotional appeal, appeal means begging you and beating you or that kind of thing. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. The reason you may be listening to this on the phone or the reason you may be listening to this on tape is because you've understood from what I've said so far that I both speak and understand the language of the heart as well as you do, that I've been there and I understand. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a, a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. 
we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And there's another reference to this person helping person, man helping man, women helping women, whatever. This is what they're talking about. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. We just talked about that. What is that effect? The effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by eating food. I'll teach you the Yiddish word of the day. It's called machaya. If you can't say machaya, try it. Machaya. What is a machaya? Oh, it's a pleasure. You get into your bathtub and it's just the right temperature. Oh, it's a machaya. And what happens when I eat Oreo cookies or Kit Kat bars? Oh, it's a machaya for about eight seconds. So the Yiddish word of the day today is machaya. Okay. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Now, when they're not eating, they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity, and impunity just means indifference. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, spiritual awakening, there is very little hope of his recovery. So we're looking for that effect, that sense of ease and comfort, because these emotions have built to the level where I'm uncomfortable with them. And my intellect says don't eat, and my emotions demand that I eat. And any time emotions confront intellect, emotions will win. I eat the food. I trigger the allergy. I admit it's injurious. I trigger the allergy. And when it says we can't after a time differentiate the truth from the false, what they're talking about isn't that I think that um, uh, Los Angeles is in France. No, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is I will look at a Kit Kat bar and say I'm just going to eat one of them. When I know damn well I'm going to eat 20 of them because I always do. Why? Because the first couple of bites makes me feel fantastic. But then once it's inside of me, I've triggered the allergy. And I will pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat that way again. And I will repeat that cycle over and over and over and over again, the mind telling me it's okay to eat and the body ensuring it's not. On the other hand, back to page 29 in Roman numerals, XXIX, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules, and the rules are the steps. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal, Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. 
faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he sometimes feels his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change, spiritual awakening. Though the aggregate of recovery, <clears throat> let's try that again. <clears throat> Sorry. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. There he's saying it again in a different way. And this repudiates, this flies in the face of everything that has been said up to that point, that it is a problem of mental control, that it is a problem of willpower and sanity, and here he's saying that it's not a problem of mental control. A friend of mine used to do big book studies, and he'd say, how many of you are compulsive overeaters? People raise their hand, all of them raise their hand. He'd say, how many of you are ashamed of it? More people, you know, raise their hand. And he say, you're playing God. You have nothing to do with it. This, is, this didn't happen because you zigged when you should have zagged. This didn't happen because you married somebody or you didn't marry him. This didn't happen because you're white or black or green or yellow. This didn't happen because you're tall or short. It happened because it happened. Now what are we going to do about it? I do not hold with those that, oh, sorry. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so to, prior to the date, and the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. And what, why did they drink when, the, when they had the appointment? Fear. Fear overtook them. The emotion of fear over the meeting, was it going to go my way? Am I going to get a good deal? Whatever it is. Fear woke up the mental twist, and the mental twist sent them into the drink. And the drink made them feel better for about 10 seconds. Lit them up. When an alcoholic takes a drink or two, they're, they're ready to roll. They're great. When we eat some food, we're ready to roll. We're great. Everything's groovy. But then we've triggered the allergy. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. Now, I don't know how many people are on the phone right now, and it's not important that I, that I know it. But we're talking about recovery from compulsive overeating. Let's just think for a minute that we were talking about a surefire cure for cancer. <laughs> However many people are on the phone right now, there'd be a hundred times that many on the phone. Why? What's the difference? This is a part where we're going to have to get a spiritual awakening and ego will rear its ugly head and ego will tell me I can do it my way. I can do it my way. My case is different. You don't understand. My case is different. And every one of us, every one of us, that has seen ourselves do this again and again and again and again. It starts with we separate from the group because of ego. They're witches. They're this. They're rich. They're this. They live here. I live there. They do this. I do that. They don't understand. I've had a bad life and my dad was a jerk and my mom this. That's what ego does. Humility 
And in step seven, humility, not humiliation, humility allows me to be another bozo on the bus. It allows me to be one of the group where ego will never permit that. And so we die. And we die by the hundreds of thousands every day. And the world is stripped of the talents of these people and the families will grieve them. They'll die much too soon. And here's a recovery and it's free. The classifications of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon, going on a diet for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. When we get to step three in chapter five, we're going to find out that step three is both a decision and a beginning. A decision and a beginning. There is the, the, there is a type of man who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is a type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. And how many of us have gone on the diet and lost a lot of weight? We went to the wedding. We went to the bar mitzvah. We went to the funeral. We went to the party, whatever it was. And we saw that food that we can't get all the time. We saw that food that we've been so good. Now we're going to indulge in that food. And the weight we lost, we find out, sent out for reinforcements. We lose 80 and gain 140. We lose 20 and gain 60. We never go back to where we were. We always go past it. The weight we lose always sends out for reinforcements. Excuse me. There is a manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, we talked about that, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. And you see person after person after person after person that will come back to meetings, hopefully, or they'll call and they'll say, I'm in the food because they forgot that they have to do this for their lifetime. They got to a certain weight, they got to a certain point, and they decided they don't need this anymore. But the disease, it didn't stop, and it beat them down, and their ego prevented them from coming back. Many of them will die. But in my 35 years in in Overeaters Anonymous, I'm I'm not in AA, but I, I, whatever, but I go to their meetings when I lived in Oregon because there was no OA up there at the time. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years, so I went to AA meetings that were open because they, don't, they didn't have OA there at the time. But you see, person after person, they stop doing the steps because they think that now that their weight is to a certain point that they're cured, and they're, we've talked about that. All these, in, oh wait, uh, the phenomena we have, okay, sorry. It has never been by any treatment with we are, which we are familiar 
permanently eradicated, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And there's the third time he is telling me, I've got to put down the food to have a spiritual awakening. I am not going to have a spiritual awakening while I'm eating Kit Kat bars and Oreos. It's not going to happen. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. Chronic just means you drink all the time. He had, been part, he had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life, was only living one might say to drink. He frankly admitted that he believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but their all resemblance ended. Sorry. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-confidence and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort. Unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology and we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then. He has as fine a specimen of, as, of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray, William D. Silkworth, M.D. So these last couple of little stories here tell us that these chronic alcoholics suffering from alcoholism at a very deep level were helped and catapulted over their situation by a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps that if I will work the steps out of the big book with a sponsor that knows what they're doing, I can be free. Now, I've given decades of my life to this illness. Decades of my life were wasted by this illness. And if I will work these steps, I don't have to give this illness one more second before I close, I do want to make one pitch for the OA birthday. I know some of you can come, some of you can't come, whatever it is, but the OA birthday is the last weekend of January, and it is in Los Angeles, California. It is a wonderful convention. OA was founded on January 19, 1960, and this birthday celebration will be the 23rd, 24th, and 25th 
of January, so it's in three weeks, in Los Angeles. And if you would like some information on the OA birthday, go to Los Angeles Overeaters Anonymous, hit enter, and then in the upper left-hand corner, there will be birthday. You can get registration forms, hotel information, all kinds of stuff. This is a magnificent convention. There's going to be an entire big book study going all day Saturday and Sunday morning. There's going to be more workshops, more panels, more discussions of recovery at this OA birthday than we have ever had before. I'm going to attend. Many of the people from here in Scottsdale, Arizona are going, and we hope to see you there. Uh, It's a wonderful convention if you can make it. Leah, I didn't think I could finish in an hour, but I did, and I'm done. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you, Harlan. Thank you for this thorough and revealing study of the doctor's opinion this morning. We thank you for your service. Let's just say your talk was... Truly a machaya, Harlan. <laughs> <laughs> um, now we uh, will open the line for questions that you might have. Press star one to unmute to ask questions of Harlan. Sarah W. Sarah W. Go ahead. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Holland, for your inspiring um, talk on the doctor's opinion. So very important as a foundation, as we know. Um, very grateful to be uh, recovered today. And I wanted to ask, as far as when people, uh, when you're working with people, and they keep on slipping uh, and sliding, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're struggling to get to the place mm-hmm. where they can be abstinent. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you're reading the doctor's opinion with them. They're reading it. Um, you're driving home the fact that it is an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind, mm-hmm. um, and they just keep on going back to the food. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts or, because um, I think this is a common problem, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yes, I understand that you have to be ready. Um, is there mm-hmm. anything that we can do to help this person? Mm-hmm. There is. You've come mm-hmm. up with. Go ahead. Leave, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Leave, leave them alone. When, you're, when, when their recovery is more important to you than it is to them, that is the alanonic condition in its active form. Chapter 7 is very clear. If they don't want to do this, leave them alone. I'll teach you another Yiddish expression, lozen gain, leave them alone. And by leaving them alone, the food will beat them back down to submission at some point. But they have a God and it's not us. And we are not here to force people that don't want this into recovery because it cannot be done. Well, can can I just give an adjunct to that? You know, they keep coming back to us. They're coming back to meetings, but they're not bringing their willingness. I tell them flat out, I cannot make you willing. I have sponsees that slip and slide. I have sponsees that will call me crying. Oh, I'm... Struggling again, I will leave them alone. I'll tell them if you get a couple of days under your belt, I will, you know, we can we can pick back up again. But if you really don't want to do this, you're not going to. Nothing I'm going to say to them. Nothing I'm going to do for them. Watch their actions rather than their words. Watch what they're doing. They're eating. What are they telling you? They're eating. At some point, Sarah, 
You have to want this enough to put that plan into action. And if that action is for a couple of days you climb the walls, then that's what you're going to have to do. It's not easy to put the food down, but we mm-hmm. do it. Here is bottom. When the fear of more eating overwhelms the fear of giving up my food, recovery can take place. Until that person reaches that point, nothing can be done. We can support them by going to meetings with them. We can love them. We can adore them, and that's fine. But we cannot make them willing to put the fork down. That has to come from within them. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. I would suggest, Sarah, rereading Chapter 7. I have. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. Who's next with a question for Harlan? Elaine D. I heard Elaine D. Who else? Alice. Alice. Kim, I believe. Okay, let's start with Elaine B. Thank you, Harlan, for your fabulous presentation. And I know there'll be a lot of people listening to this with interest. So a question that I have is, so you're working with somebody, uh, you're sponsoring somebody or guiding them through the steps. You go through the doctor's opinion, and they can really relate to the fact that they have an allergy of the body. And so what what is your recommendation or process to help them identify exactly what that allergy looks like? With alcohol, you put down alcohol. Drugs, you put down drugs. But with food, it's a little bit different. Do you have suggestions for that step or process? I don't, I don't see where the allergy is any different at all. I don't know how that's different. The more I eat, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat. The more I eat, the more I want. I've never eaten one cookie in my life unless it was the last cookie I could get my hands on. So I think that the allergy for food is identical to the allergy for alcohol. Now, if you're, if you're um, an anorexic, which I don't know, and I don't understand necessarily how the allergy would go there, but once an anorexic eats, they trigger that allergy. But I think the allergy is exactly the same. If you're a compulsive overeater, can you just stop with two Oreo cookies? I sure can. So the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat. And so the allergy is very easy to illustrate. And I I go through a food history with every person that I work with. And Elaine, I can tell you that that allergy is very, very apparent right there. Very apparent. So... I think it's I think it's it's is easier or easier to point it out with food than it is with alcohol. Thank you, Elaine B for the question. Alice M, your turn. Hi, thank you, Harlan. Um You're there's welcome. there's something I don't understand. Um on the page, I totally get the big book's writing where it says these men were not drinking to escape. Mm-hmm. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. I get mm-hmm. that for me. I feel mm-hmm. like it's I I have this craving, this want to get high. I I and so I binge. However, when you explained it, um, you said that food is the answer to my problem, Correct. which Correct. is the untenable pain that comes about when we are not eating. Well, Correct. sometimes I will not be in a state of identifiable pain. I will be walking out in the sunshine. And all of a sudden, this wave comes over me that, God, wouldn't it feel good to get 
high right now mm-hmm. with the food. Happiness, so. happiness is an emotion too. Hap- I said that right at the beginning. Happiness, mm-hmm. elation, euphoria. These are emotions too. I have eaten railroad cars full of Kit Kat bars when I was feeling fantastic when things were going my way. Oftentimes, the, the second worst thing in the life of a compulsive overeater is when things don't go your way. The worst being when they do because you feel that invincibility. You feel that, that power that you have and you're great and everything's going your way. You might as well eat because you can control it and you're going to be greater than this. And yes, I have eaten many, many railroad cars full of Kit Kat bars and full of Oreo cookies when things were, I was in the sunshine and things were good. Absolutely. It's emotions. It's, and not necessarily bad ones. They can be good ones too. Happiness, elation. Uh, these things can send me reeling into the food. Absolutely. It's any emotion. Thank you, Alice M. Kim M., your turn. Thank you very much. This is Kim M.C. in the Dallas, Texas area. Carla, oh. I would like for you to expound on entire abstinence. The challenge for me in entire guiding others. Okay. I, well, okay, let, let me just, um, I want to be very specific in your, as you expound on it. Okay. Because um, most common I find people have an allergy to sugar. Yet they want to chew sugar-free gum. They want um, to put Splenda in their coffee. Um, they want to use stevia and say it's natural. So any added sweetness, I say, if you're adding something to enhance the sweetness, then that will trigger the allergy. Can you expound on that? Yes, I can. Actually, Kim, I, I, I'm actually I'm coming to the Dallas area next November. I was just there. They asked me back, so I hope to see you in November. But um, I dislike the word abstinence. I use it because it's vernacular to OA. What I'm really looking for is sanity in my relationship to food. Sanity. But when they when they say entire abstinence, what they don't mean is laboratory perfect. The alcoholics, the drug addicts, can be perfect in their abstinence. They're just absolutely perfect. And we beat ourselves because, well, I I may have had an eyedropper more of tuna because this can seemed like it was really stuffed with fish. Uh, So we get into trouble with that too. We have to put down the food, and it's not just sugar. It can be fried foods. It can be whatever it is for that person. Maybe that person has a problem with, I don't know, gum or whatever it is. These are things that we need to look at. And unlike the alcoholics, it's not always going to be as clear cut. And that's why I use somebody who knows what they're doing to guide me along in this area. I do make use of what they offer. So we're not talking about something that's going to necessarily be the same for all people. But there has to be sanity in my relationship with food. Sanity is the most important thing I'm looking for. I hope that answers it. But if a person has a problem with stevia or if a person is thinking about uh, gum or whatever, if you're sitting there thinking about it all the time, you're probably not, 
you're probably not in safe water there. You're probably not in a sane situation there. And that's something I would look at giving up immediately. When I'm obsessing like that about a particular food, it's probably got to go. It's probably got to go. Thank you, Kim M., for the question. Who else has a question for Harlan this morning? Star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Mary A. Nancy K. I heard Mary. I heard Nancy. Anybody else? Tara. Judy K. I, Deborah S. Okay, let's start with Mary, please. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Harlan. Morning. I don't, I don't know if I can articulate this right. It's a very <clears throat> simple question. I've listened to you over and over on your rec- on the recordings. I get so much from uh, from what you share. But again, this morning, when I hear you speak, you say, "If we don't put down the food," I hear this over and over again, as if it's something that I myself could do, like people who really have no idea of the 12 steps, have no idea, have ever been in the rooms. They're always trying to do it on their own. I never hear. It's as if you get a few days under your belt and come back to me and I'll work with you. I don't hear about, I know from myself, I had absolutely no power to put down the food, to stop eating, absolutely none until I had the willingness to come on meetings and pray and pray to God for that spiritual awakening. Could you address that? I had to literally climb the walls at first when I came in. Um, I obviously had a very different abstinence than I have today. Abstinence, like my higher power, like many things, evolves and adapts over time. Um, But I had to literally climb the walls. I remember very, very, very distinctly uh, the very first night that I couldn't take it anymore. And I, I, the very first night I got up to go to the bathroom and I remember crying as I was doing my job in the bathroom. I was literally crying my eyes out and I could not go back to sleep. And I, I was literally counting the minutes on my clock I had a clock radio at that time, and I was watching the minutes go by because I couldn't wait for breakfast. And in my mind, there was a red light that said, you can't eat now, and then there was the green light. And as soon as it hit 7.30, and that green light was on where I could eat breakfast, I was probably 500 pounds at that time, 600 maybe, 500 for sure. I leaped out of bed. I, I mean, I was like a hurdler. And I ran into that kitchen. I probably looked like a charging rhinoceros. And it was time to eat breakfast. But there is going to come a point in my life where I cannot take the pain anymore. And if you're out there listening and you're thinking, if I'm powerless over food, how am I going to put the food down? I had to gut it out for a couple of days. I have to gut it out. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be painless. If this was easy, everybody would do it. You're going to have to gut it out. You're going to have to ask yourself, how much pain are you willing to inflict on yourself? And that's where I had to be. 
I couldn't sleep through the night. I was in so much pain without the food. But I, I, I gutted it out. I gutted it out. I, I started working the steps. I hope that answers it. Thank you, Mary. Nancy G., your turn. Okay. Hi, Harlan. This is Nancy G. Thank you so much for your presentation. You're very welcome, Nancy. Um, Harlan, I'm I'm currently on step nine. I plan on finishing uh, my step nine, although I've been doing step ten as I go along as well. But mm-hmm. for you, for you, what is your experience? When did you finally say to yourself, "Ah, oh, I'm recovered"? It seems to me I'm still, you know, I'm working the steps, but uh, um, the obsession of the mind is. Uh, definitely still there some days worse Mm. than others and i was Mm -hmm. just wondering um what your experience was on that if you're on step nine and you're still really craving you're really uh having this obsession for the food then i would really look at a few things uh number one how quickly are you moving through because a lot of sponsors and sponsees move through at a snail's pace and that will invite the disease back to tap you on the shoulder and get your attention again uh, number two, do you have a step two? Do you have a power greater than yourself, Nancy, that you are absolutely willing to believe in? Are you hesitating in step two, step nine? Uh, Sam Shoemaker, who wrote a book in 1921, Sam Shoemaker was the head of the cavalry mission in New York. He was an Episcopalian minister. And he became one of Bill Wilson's closest spiritual mentors. As a matter of fact, here's something may, maybe many of you don't know. Uh, Bill Wilson actually asked Sam to write the big book and to write the steps. But anyway, that aside, Sam Shoemaker wrote a book where he discusses the four impediments to God. These are the four impediments to God. Number one is a resentment that we will not let go of. Did you do a thorough fourth step? Are you doing your tenth steps? Are you allowing emotions to build? Have you done your tenth steps today? Or are you not? Are you just stuffing emotions? A lot of people misconceive step 10, and they believe that they have to start 10 when they're done with 9. 10 begins as you clean up the past. What steps do you use to clean up the past? 8 and 9. So you begin doing steps 10. If you're not doing them, emotions are building up, and what will emotions building up catapult you into? The food. The second impediment to God is a re- a, a, an amends that you will not make. They didn't call it amends. They called it restitution that you will not make. Number one, a resentment. Are you doing step 10? Number two, a, amends that you will not make. Are you moving through your ninth step quickly enough? Number three, a vicarious thrill that you will not let go of. When I say a vicarious thrill, I'm not talking about playing with your dog or holding uh, you know, a child's vision in your heart and, and, and loving that. I'm talking about lying and getting away with it, stealing and getting away with it, character assassination and getting away with it. That's what I'm talking about. And then fourth is a secret that you will not tell. Did you do a thorough fifth step? Did you hold something back? Because whenever you're struggling in a step, it is never that step that is the problem you immediately go back and back and back. And where you usually end up is step two. Step two is the culprit that will hesitate you and stop you in nine. Go back to two. Do you have a God that you are willing to believe in? Do you have a God that you are in constant companionship with? If you don't, you're going to wake up the illness. 
I, I, I don't have the time to, to go into it because there's other people, but this is really what we're looking at, Nancy. Whenever somebody is struggling in nine, two is the culprit, not nine. Thank you, Nancy G. Judy K., your turn. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Judy K., compulsive reader. Harlan, you talked about uh, sanity with food and the eyedropper full. So will you, do you have any comments about um, a black and white abstinence then? If, if, if that I, I, is, hate, I hate that kind of thinking. It destroys us more than it helps us. A hammer to the head is not one of the tools of recovery. I'm not giving you permission to go out and eat three horses. I'm not giving you permission to eat the candy section uh, at your local grocery store. What I'm saying is we have to get into a sane relationship with food rather than an insane relationship with food. And if you have a sane relationship with food, you're going to be comfortable. If you have an insane relationship with food, you can be just as nutty in recovery as you are not eating, not in recovery. Recovery would be insanity. But you can be just as nutty with your food because you've got that dieting mentality. We are not here to diet with group support. We are here to recover. And when we have a spiritual awakening, I don't eat extra food. I don't want it. I don't want it. So get your food in order and work the steps, and you won't want the food. It will not call you. But a hammer to your head, Judy, is not one of the tools of recovery. Thank you, Judy Kay. Tara, your turn. Hi, Harlan. Thank you so much, especially for the last explanation. You're welcome, Carol. (laughs) Sanity with the food does, you know, in my case, does not mean that um, I have a bunch of um, strict absolute rules about what and when and where and how I eat. I'm I'm growing in sanity because I have a higher power and gradually my food is getting sane. My eating is getting saner and saner. So my question is, is it, isn't it more obsessive to spend so much time thinking about what I can or can't eat, thinking about, yeah, I guess that's okay. pretty much I it. don't spend a lot of time on that. I have somebody that I that I go to that's a professional in the field, and they give me a food plan. I don't spend an enormous amount of time thinking about it. I just don't. I, I honestly I don't. I, I don't sit I, clearly. Um, this is something that comes from the dieting with food support mentality is this obsessive thinking about what I'm going to eat and what I'm not going to eat and what I'm going to eat and what I'm not going to eat. My God in heaven, who in the world could live that way and not jump out the window? We have to come to a sane place with it. And the food can't take up that much room in my head and I'll still have any brain power left to do anything else. You know, that that can be the, we can get just as nuts with that as we can, you know, get with anything else. 
So I hope that answers it, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I can and can't eat. My food plan is like a map. It just gets me where I want to go. It's, it, and it's very, it's relatively simple. So I hope I answered it. I don't know. Thank you, Tara. Devorelea, your turn. Devora, are you there? Oh, man, I, I didn't even think you had heard me. Oh, yes, thank I didn't. you. I, I thought there was something wrong with the phone. Oh, hi, Holland. I, oh, my You're God. Devora. Devora. Thanks. Thank you. What? What? Go ahead with your question. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice. Go ahead with your question, please. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know if you answered it by the last few things that you said. Harlan, it was so wonderful to hear you, and I'm so impressed with what you did for yourself. It, it's amazing. I mean, I was over 300 at one point, but I'm not going into my story. I, um you know, I bought a new blender, Ninja, and I was so excited, and it has recipes on it. And I, I've come to see that sugar has a very bad effect of, on me. I'm manic-depressive, and I have the euphoria and the lows, and I'm on medication. And uh, I just started to make the recipes. It was called Blueberry Blast, and it called for some grape juice white grape juice, and I didn't bother to see how much sugar was in it. Mm-hmm. And I started blasting away with the blueberry blast, and I I started to feel that my eyes were pasted in my head. And I, um, I, I don't know if I went into a depression. Something bad happened to me. And I called someone in the vision for you, and I don't think she realized that I, I didn't do it on purpose. You know, and as I was talking to her, I said, well, maybe I got sick from the grape juice. I don't really know how much sugar is in it, and she gave it to me so bad. And I started cursing and screaming and yelling, and I said, how dare you put me down like that? Mm. Um, Is making a mistake with food um, because we're not thinking clearly? I don't know what is thinking clearly or not thinking clearly, but they have a name for people that make mistakes and they're called human beings. That's the name that they have for people that make mistakes. What is okay is to make a mistake. What's not okay for me is to repeat the mistake again and again and again and not learn from it. So what I will do is anytime I am in a situation like that, I can do something that is made easier every day. Look at the ingredients of what I'm doing. Look at the ingredients. I'm not afraid to read labels. I'm not afraid to investigate. If somebody walked up to me on the street and said, here, here's a pill, take the pill, I wouldn't just do that. I would investigate. What is this pill? What does it do? What are the side effects? So the bottom line is, Devorah, I've got to take my life and say, I can read a label. I can investigate. I can read a label. Okay, you made a mistake. Okay, fine. No problem. It's what we do with it. It's where we go from here. Thank you, Devorlea, for your question. Harlan, what, what, when do you need to be off the line, Harlan? Whenever you tell me, I'm here to serve you. I'm not here for me. I'm here for you guys. Whatever you tell me is fine. Okay, Harlan, thank you very much. Okay, 
Who would like to ask a question? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Carol. I heard Diane G. I heard a Carol. Who else? It was Cheryl A. Okay. Thank you. Let's start with Okay. Let's start with Cheryl A and then we'll go to Carol G. Thank you. Hi, thanks so much. Hi, Harlan. Um, Hi, Cheryl. Question for you. So mm-hmm. it says in the big book that we need enough willingness to establish and maintain the new order of things. And hold on one second, sweetheart, okay? Sweetie, hold on one second. Mommy's going to ask a question. You know what, Leah? Go on to someone else, and I'll come back after them. Okay, thank you, Cheryl. Carol G., please. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Leah. Thank you, Harlan, so very much for your presentation today. Thank you, Carol. Um, my question's quite simple. I just hope you might say it a different way so I can uh, help to be understood. Um, restless, irritable discontent does feel to me more emotional than mental. So could you elaborate? Why do we actually say mental twist, mental obsession, rather than emotional twist? I, I don't know, but really and truly, whenever emotions meet intellect, emotions will trump intellect. It will, it will subjugate the intellect. We know what we're doing to ourselves, and we do it anyway. We know that what we're doing is injurious, but we cannot help doing it. Um, and so uh, it really is an emotional twist. If you really want to know the truth, Carol, it is an emotional twist. It really is. Mental would uh, sort of have a connotation to it that it was intellectual, and it's not. But as I wasn't around when these terms were being, uh, you know, bantered about, I, I don't know. But it really is an emotional situation. That's what it really is. Thank you, Carol G. Diane G., please. Hi, good morning, Helen. This is Diane G. from New Hampshire. Hi, Diane. um, Yeah, when you were on last time, I told you I listened to you every day on your tape (laughs) and um, just listened to you yesterday, so you're really a gift in my life. Um, Thank you. I have a question for you, though. I I went through the steps before, and I I, I did end up picking up, and um, so I'm going through the steps again. And. um. Do you know of anybody having, like, a spiritual awakening before they finish um, the first at least nine steps? Because Mm -hmm. I don't want the food, desire the food, need the Mm -hmm. food. Yeah. Yeah, And and that's where I am. And my my other question is, do you know if you're going to be in the East Coast this year? I don't. Um, I go where I'm invited. Uh, The only thing I have on the agenda now is I will be at the Big Book. Uh, I will be at the um, OA birthday. I'm supposed to do San Francisco. That's not near you. Dallas is not near you. Uh, I'm going, I I don't have a lot of travel scheduled this year, and I don't have anything on the East Coast. I was in Lancaster, PA last year and Boston, Mass last year. So those were East Coast destinations. But if I get Uh, invited, if the... If the phone rings, if the phone rings and they invite me out there, if I can get there in one airplane, I will go. Uh, If I can't, I sometimes go anyway, but that's usually my criterion is if I can get to you in one airplane, I'll generally come out your way. If I can't get to you in one airplane, I'll pray about it and think about it, and usually I'll go anyway, so. 
Yeah. But I would love to see I would love to see New Hampshire if someone will just drive me to East Dorset, Vermont from there, I'd be very happy. <laughs> We'd love to have you. Thanks. Thank you. And about the um about the spiritual um, I've seen many people have them before they were done, before, not done, done, done or you're dead, but uh, I've seen many people have them uh, quicker because they're very thorough and they're doing them. You, you should have your spiritual awakening uh, right around step nine, but there are people that have them before. I've seen people have them before, absolutely. I've never seen a person, though, not have one that thoroughly followed our path. That I've not seen. If you thoroughly follow the path of the steps, you will have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. But only if you maintain it throughout your life. If you stop doing the steps, you will go back to the food. If you are a compulsive overeater, you will go back to the food. I hope that does it. I hope that answers it. Thank you very much. Okay, let's move on to Sue G, please, with your question, Sue. Hello, it's Sue G from uh, Pennsylvania, southeastern corner. Thank you so much, Harlan, for your message. You're very I just, I just love your holistic approach. I'm, <laughs> Thank you, I'm Sue. a, I'm a woman of medicine. <laughs> I confess, and and so I'm very interested in these foundations of the AA program. I'm reading more about the history. I'm sure you know a lot more than I do. But I really think about Dr. Silkworth's message, and and I'd just like you to comment on this. My my idea about it is Dr. Silkworth's message, it, it is a medical message, but it's a beautiful type of medical message because mm-hmm. what what he's saying is really spiritual. And I found this little place on page 30, Roman numeral 30, XXX, um, the second to last full paragraph. So it starts out, all these and many others, that is these Mm -hmm. people, have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. And Mm -hmm. here's the stopper sentence for me. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, et cetera, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. and so he's, he's one of us agnostics. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is, we, we who do not know. He, he is willing to say, look at, and, and he's kind of like, the poem for him is Little Bo Peep who lost her sheep. And mm-hmm. what do you do? You let them go, and then they come back, wagging their tails behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, my husband shared that with me. My husband who has cancer is doing very well. Mm-hmm. And if he had gone to get Laetril as treatment, remember Laetril, the mm-hmm. the, uh, yes. the magic potion given out in Mexico, I would have killed him. I swear, mm-hmm. I would have had to call you to keep from killing him. <laughs> so, you know, but there's, this, it's, Silkworth gave a spiritual message. And then he got his spiritual companions, Harry Tebu and some others, Carl, mm-hmm. Carl Jung, the whole club, mm-hmm. and and blessings on all of them. Mm-hmm. Thanks for letting me sort of comment, and I wonder what mm-hmm. your comment is about this. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I did thank God for these people. I also thank God, and I I hit my knees every night for uh, for the first one hundred. Uh, I thank God for OA, Roseanne, all the things that happened. You know that set the ball in motion. 
you know, these people, the, these first 100 people were really not 100. They were really 60, but they said, you know, Bill was cunning, baffling, and powerful too, so they talked about 100, but because he thought it sounded better. But these people that came in to early AA, they took butter knives and they cut paths through the jungle that didn't exist. They didn't have a vision for you. They didn't have the OA birthday. They didn't have meetings like we have. They didn't have a website. They had nothing. They had each other. And they were redwood trees. The redwood tree is the largest living thing in the world. No living thing is larger than a redwood tree. But the roots of the redwood tree are rather shallow. And if they don't have each other to hang on to, they fall down. And we are like the redwood trees. We need each other because our grip is tenuous and daily. And we need each other. And we need the big book. And we need to pray. And we need a higher power. And we need these things because otherwise we will eat again. We will eat again. But the knowledge, the foundation, the pedestal of everything we're going to build on comes from this particular chapter in the book, the doctor's opinion. And without this chapter, there's nothing to build on because we will not know. The, we won't see the need for the spiritual awakening. And we would have continued treating alcoholism and gluttony, and, you know, which is what we are or compulsive overeating, if you will, with we would continue to treat it with the things that failed every time. We see that you weigh too much, so we tell you to limit your intake of food. And by the reduction of food and the reduction of weight, you'll solve the problem. Eh, no, wrong answer. No, you won't. And it says in, in Chapter 2, <clears throat> we believe that the uh, elimination of drinking is but a beginning. And it also says in chapter 2 that the main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than the body. So we're going to treat the mind with the, with the steps. We're going to have a spiritual awakening so we can change our emotional state. And as we change our emotional state, then soon we do not see the need to eat. We don't see the need for the food. And that's where we want to be. I'll take the next one. I hope I answered you, Sue. I hope I, I, I hope we, we got that settled, but um, we're going to move on to the next person. Sorry. Thank you. Kathleen D. Kathleen D. Thank you. Uh, Harlan, um, I just wanted to ask you if you knew your dates for San Francisco when you're coming, and um, if it was possible to get the title of uh, the Schumacher book. Shoemaker. Oh, you can look it up online. Shoemaker. He, he, he wrote Shoemaker, like a cobbler. Yeah, you can Excuse look me. them up online. I don't have it in my head right now. I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> I don't have it in my head. But you can look it up online. He actually wrote several books. Look for the one he wrote in 1921, and that's the one with the four impediments. But if you look at the four impediments, Kathleen, if you look at the four impediments, you see all the steps all look right there. What did he say? A resentment that you will not let go of. A vicarious thrill that you will not let go of. The resentment. You've got four and ten. You've got the vicarious thrill, six and seven. Uh, an amends that you will not make, eight and nine. And a secret that you will not tell, step five. 
I don't have the dates for San Francisco. Here's the thing with San Francisco, and maybe you can help me with this, Kathleen. Uh, the lady that called me about San Francisco called me at a time last year where I could not come, and I said I would do it this year. It's in August, as I recall, but I haven't heard from her in a while. But, uh, you know, if, if, you could, if you could find out who's in charge of that one and have her recon, recon, uh, reconnect with me, we'll get that thing squared away for San Francisco. Thank you, Kathleen D. And let's move on to Lauren S., please. my gosh, I didn't know that you heard me. Okay, Lauren S., as in Sam from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi, hi, Harlan. Hi, buddy. Um, hi, oh, Lauren. Oh, gosh. Very helpful to your fellows in program. Wow. What do I want? Well, what comes to me is when they say entire abstinence. Now, for me, you know, I I was told just to carry that throughout my entire life. So I'm not getting an effect from substances that I might not be allergic to, but will still block me. So for me, entire abstinence means I don't, oh gosh, like I don't drink or use or or eat substances that could block me. So I had a question about when you have fellows who take medication, it might Mm -hmm. be an outside issue, but I've heard of sponsors having different opinions on that and being very careful with taking people through the steps who are under the influence of medication. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much. I'll pass. When you say medication, Lauren, uh, do you mean uh, street drugs or do you mean prescribed by a doctor? Push. Uh, If it's prescribed for a doctor, I have no opinion on it. There are offshoot groups of Overeaters Anonymous. There are offshoot groups uh, that I know of very well that really make demands on people not to take antidepressants, anti-anxiety, whatever. I believe that as a sponsor in OA, one of the things I do not have after my name is an MD or a, or anything like that. I have no opinion on these things. If a doctor tells you to take antidepressants, if a doctor tells you to take anti-anxiety, if a doctor tells you to, you know, hop on one foot, I have absolutely nothing to say. Absolutely mm-hmm. nothing to say. There's nothing that I'm going to... Uh, venture into as an opinion. So that's uh, that's just where I'm at on it. It's nothing I'm going to deal with. I am a sponsor or I'm a sponsee, whatever I am. I'm not a doctor. Thanks, Lauren S. Let's check back with Cheryl A. Cheryl A. Cheryl A. All right, perhaps not. Anyone else have a question for Harlan this morning? Star one to unmute. Questions only, please. This is Hi, Erin. I have a question. My name is Mia from Los Angeles. Okay, is- Mia, one moment, please. Who else would like to ask a question? Well, this is Sharon. I'd like to ask a question. Also. Okay, Sharon R.S. And who else? 
Okay, let's start with Mia, and then we'll go to Sharon. Thank you. Thanks. Holland, I would like to know, what is a typical day for you of abstinence? It would be very helpful to us that are out here listening. Thank you. Well, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to go through a litany of my food plan. That's pointless because what I'm eating or what, what you're eating and what, I'm, what my food plan is and what your food plan is, is could be two different things. I would strongly recommend going to someone, Mia, that knows what the heck they're doing that can guide you a lot better than I can. I'm a 60-year-old man. I may not have the same kind of needs that you have. I may not have the same food plan or the same... You might be a marathon runner. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't, all I know is a voice on the pump. So I would really recommend going to somebody that knows what the heck they're doing that can guide you a lot better than I can. Um, I, I wish I could get more specific. I really hate, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing the big book studies or a retreat or a convention, people will ultimately ask me, what's your food plan? What is, you know, and there will be a 32-year-old lady or it'll be a whatever. Mia, you, I, need, I need the input of somebody on this that knows what they're doing. That's, that's what I need. That's, that's how I get guidance from it. I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I just, I, I wish I had another answer for you, but I don't. Sorry. Thank you, Mia. Sharon R.S., your turn. Good morning, and thank you, Leah, and thank you, Harlan. I just loved listening to you. The question I have for you is something that we've been batting about on phone calls, and uh, we see when we're dealing with sponsors, I deal with it myself, uh, is we, we're recovering, we're working hard on our uh, food, we're doing the steps, we're we're staying we're 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 doing a great job and then all of a sudden we're finding trouble with relationships or trouble with money or trouble with mm-hmm. with uh sex or trouble with mm-hmm. all of these and and the sponsor uh says I don't know how to deal with that you need to go to DA sex anonymous alanon mm-hmm. child and then all of a sudden the person finds out that, and I'm just being hypothetical here, but I've had people that have three different programs, mm-hmm. and it puzzles us because it's only in the first step that it defines your addiction. Mm-hmm. It seems to many of us that we should be able to just work the steps. Our, our OA should be enough to cover all of our issues. Why? Why is it not enough? I don't know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not one of these people that's multiply addicted. I do have a 35-year backlog of experience to tell you that 99% of what I will deal with as a sponsor, beyond... I got my earpiece out here. Okay. 90 on my earpiece got knocked out of my ear. Sorry about that. You're all there, right? Yes. Okay, good. 99% of what you deal with is finance and romance, finance and romance. I think that a lot of this stems from an inadequate depth of examination 
in the steps. We kind of pass through, and we're not really doing step 10. And if 3 and 4 are the most misunderstood, 2 and 10 are the most underutilized, and we don't have a God in two that we're willing to believe in. We don't have a power greater than ourselves that we're willing to believe in. And that's when things start piling up on us. Ostensibly, the working of the steps is the working of the steps. But you also have a lot of sponsorship in OA. And this is something that will come back to haunt me. Please do not call me yelling at me later today because I will give my phone number out later in my email. Please do not yell at me for this. This is just my opinion. You have a lot of sponsorship in OA today. This is my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. You have a lot of the blind leading the blind. You have people that have not had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps in the big book sponsoring people who are floundering. And I'm not saying that you don't have to go to these other programs. Maybe you are an Alanat. Maybe you are a sex addict. Maybe you are a alcoholic. Whatever it is you are or are not, I don't know. But if you're doing an adequate amount of excavation in the steps and you're doing the three things that the steps are really, really pointing you toward, uncover, discover, and discard. Uncover who you are. Discover and discard. Uncover the things that have been blocking you the things that have been causing your failure, discover who you are, discard them, and then work. The three, the three results, get right with God, get right with yourself, get right with your fellow human being. It should, it should take care of things in a more unilateral fashion. But that's where I think you are today. And I think that there are a lot of sponsors sponsoring people that have not had the amount of work in the big book that's necessary for some of these things as they come up. hope that answers it. <clears throat> Thank you, Sharon R.S. And let's Thanks. shout out again for Cheryl A. Cheryl A., if you're available to ask your question. Leah, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay, take, take three. Um so what I was asking, what I was trying to get at before is that once we begin to work the steps after the food is put down, it says that we need to enough willingness to establish and maintain the new order of things. And that is something I think a lot about because part of the way that my disease expresses itself, I'm huffing because I'm carrying a 20-pounder right now up and down steps, um, want part of the... the Part of what I need to do is to work on how my disease expresses itself as to it relates to my level of activity, as to it relates to how much I want to do in the world, and I overdo a lot of those things. So I'm learning how to establish and maintain the new order of things. Um, with children and young children, it can be extremely difficult to prioritize what's the most important thing. And I'm wondering when your life um, throws you curveballs in whatever way that it does, what is your bottom line? I know we have to do prayer and meditation. I know we have to um, be in contact with other people. There are other, there are other things that end up becoming an incredibly important time, part of establishing and maintaining a new order of things. It could be exercise. It could be getting to sleep at a certain time and waking up at a certain time. I'm curious how you prioritize between 
uh, the structures that you need to maintain your program um, as it relates to, to all of these different things that we have to keep us sane. Okay. I, first of all, I want to say that it's good to hear your voice and I love you. But second of all, what I also want to say is on every airplane I've ever flown on, there's a fantastic Al-Anon meeting and they say, put your mask on first. And if I don't have my mask on and I'm not breathing oxygen, I can't help anyone else. If I'm floundering in the food, I'm not a good father. If I'm not doing what I need to do, and I'm not talking selfishly, I'm talking sanely, then I have nothing to give. And what I do is I pray. I ask for guidance all the time. And I'm not perfect, but I have to ask for guidance. And when that guidance comes, if it feels right, it is right. And I can often lose myself in a sponsee. I can lose myself in service. I can lose myself taking care of someone else. Now, I haven't had a little kid in my life for a long time. I haven't had that for, you know, quite some time. But I have to prioritize what is going to keep me going. And if I can't keep me going, if I can't take care of these basic needs of recovery, I'm in trouble because recovery for me must come first. If I am not in recovery, I am not a friend. I am not a father. I am not a husband, which I'm single now, but I'm not a person. I'm not anyone. I'm an eating machine. I am a shark. I'm eating machine. I hope that answers it, but I've got to remember what it says on the airplane. Put your mask on first. Thank you, Cheryl A., and thank you to everyone who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Harlan, for such a thorough, complete study of the doctor's opinion. We appreciate your time and service, and I'm going to close now in the way we always close our meetings, and that's from page 164. Do you want me to give my information out, or do you want to If you'd like to give it on the recording, we can do so. Okay, I can do it, but here's what I'm going to preface. I cannot take international calls without Sprint billing me the national debt. So if you've got an American number, here's my number, and I'll give you my email. My phone number is 480-495-8961. Give it again. It's 480-495-8961. You do not have to worry about what time it is. The phone cannot disturb me. It's fine if you want to call 3 in the morning, 2 in the morning, whatever. A, I'm usually up, and B, it's fine. Here's my email address. Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N, and then the number 288 at gmail.com. My email is Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N, 288 at gmail.com. Thank you, Harlan. Okay. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. 
Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.